0: It's very red. You, you don't want to spill that on a white blouse, kind of red.
1: Nah, white tablecloth's probably best not. Just
0: wear a bib. Yeah.
1: I think we should probably carry bibs everywhere we go because <laughs> the amount of clothes we've stained. <laughs> we wear a lot of black,
0: let's be honest. <laughs> White's not in our wardrobe rotation.
1: No, the foodie wardrobe is very specifically dark colors. Yeah. Welcome to The Dish, the show that uncovers the stories behind the world's most famous dishes.
0: We are your hosts, Tomo and Megzi from foodfuntravel.com. Join us and expert guests for tasty facts, foodie secrets and more.
1: In this episode, what to eat in Corfu, Greece famous Corfu dishes, ingredients and produce. We discuss the stories of the most important local foods, including the lost art of Corfu cooking, how the tourist boom destroyed local culinary tradition and how one woman has been trying to revive Corfu's most historic dishes.
2: Tourism in Corfu started early 60s and the locals, for some reason, instead of keeping the traditional cuisine, they just gave up and started cooking more international cuisine.
0: Plus Garlic overload! Corfu's historic take on a Venetian-Italian standard.
1: Beef has become the main meat used, but the vegetable element is basically garlic and herbs, mainly parsley. A lot of garlic. I mean we're talking at least two cloves per portion of beef. Bring it. At least, probably more. This makes for a very meaty and pungent dish, of course.
0: Make sure you're dining with friends. <laughs> and only and only kissing loved ones who really, really love you.
1: Alright, welcome to another episode of The Dish. We are back.
0: Yes, and this time we are heading off to the glorious island of Corfu in Greece.
1: Yes, crystal blue water. Great weather during the summer and lush green vegetation because they get a lot of rain in the winter.
0: And sensational food. What can we say? It's the only reason we're there.
1: Yep, we go everywhere for food, so that is exactly what we've done. Once again, we've headed off and forced ourselves to eat wonderful dishes. In a glorious location just for the purposes of letting you guys know about this stuff. I know.
0: It's difficult. It was so difficult to force the fork into my mouth time and time again eating fresh caught seafood and local delicacies. It's just, I hope you all realize the struggle.
1: Yeah, the struggle's real, people. And in Greece, the struggle is more real because there's a lot of food and the portion sizes are pretty substantial and people like to feed us, apparently.
0: They do. But at least, you know, it's that whole Mediterranean diet, so it's healthy.
1: Yeah, Ish. to an extent. Uh, maybe some dishes healthier than others. We'll be discussing that as we go through this episode. But yes, Corfu is on the northwest coast of Greece, just off the coast. It's actually parallel with Albania. The north part of Corfu is parallel to Albania. So yeah, you can that stand there north. and
0: wave at everybody. Yeah. I mean, you can't actually see anyone, but you can see the mountains and you're like, Hi, Albania! And then in the distance you hear, Who are you? <laughs>
3: <laughs> you
1: have better hearing than me. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just opposite Albania and the northern corner of Greece, and it's on the Dalmatian coast. It's the far south part of that. So you've got Croatia along there. I'm sure a lot of people have heard of Game of Thrones. Of uh, we were in that region recently as well, and it's down that same coast. So it links down from Venice on the Italian side all the way down Croatia, Albania, and into Greece. It's a very nice place in the world. I can promise you that. So let's start up this episode with a bit of history about the island. Of course, we are going to be getting into the food, but it's good to have a bit of context because it gives you a good idea of why the food is what it is. I
0: think Greece is very diverse and there's lots of different influences that have come from different regions. So the history is a very important part when you're talking about the different
1: islands. And there's been a lot of history going on in Greece, that's for sure. So the island of Corfu has had a long history that has been mentioned frequently in Greek mythology. The name Corfu might actually be derived from the word. Corfi, meaning peak, and that would go back to the 7th century when the Byzantine Empire built a castle on a summit near to current Corfu town. But for the Greeks, uh, the island is not called Corfu at all. That is our international name for it. The actual Greek name for it is Kekira, which is named after a nymph who was the daughter of the river god Apsopos. 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 I
0: had no idea.
1: There you go. They don't even call it Corfu. That's just I keep just finding
0: us. these sneaky things with the Greeks, because um, I asked someone the other day about how you pronounce moussaka, and he was like, moussaka, and I was like, but I had heard that it's moussaka, and he's like,
1: yeah, it's moussaka, and I'm like, <laughs> what? <laughs> They're just corrupting their own language just to appease foreigners. Yeah. It's unfortunate, but you know. Yeah, that's tourism for you. What are you going to do? Uh, the island has archaeological evidence of inhabitation as far back as 40,000 BC.
0: That's bonkers.
1: So I'm guessing that's like uh, Neanderthals or something. Yeah. So there's some sort of small amount of evidence going on. I haven't found the exact details of that. But more recent evidence of human settlement from the Mesolithic and Neolithic periods, which is sort of around the 2600 BC and before time, they've definitely been found in the north of the island near the town of Sidari, which is very close to the Corfu Beer Company that we hey, went hey, to visit. Hey, hey. So they're making some Corfu craft beer. We might mention them again later on, but the Corfu craft beer is excellent. Big fans of that. Um, Corfu's location, as I mentioned, it's the northwest corner of Greece in the Ionian Sea, which leads into the Adriatic. And it's meant, of course, with that location, they have been occupied many, many times over the years from the Romans and Byzantine empires in sort of the uh, 400 AD era and after, up until the Venetian rule, which started in 1386, until eventually the French took them over in 1797. In fact, the French took over lots of that coastline around that time during the Napoleonic Wars or just before. And pretty crazy. They just invaded that whole area because, well, I mean, it's real pretty. Well, yeah, that's true. And it's pretty handy for the old trade business. So It is in
0: a very good location trade-wise back in the day.
1: Yeah pretty crazy we'll talk about that a bit more in a minute as well the venetians were there for such a long time that's sort of over 400 years so the connection with venetian cuisine and corfu cuisine be strong yeah there's a strong connection a lot of the italian cooking methods and things that have come out of venice are clearly seen in Corfiat cooking and that includes things like pasta being a major part of the cuisine
0: yeah which i was very surprised but uh pleasantly surprised because i like the pasta
1: pasta is tasty So shortly after the French rule began in 1797, then the islands were taken by the British because of that whole Napoleonic Wars thing going on in the early 19th century. So the British went, well, we're going to fight you. We're going to have these. And eventually, in 1864, the British gave the islands back to Greece. Now, during World War II, the islands were occupied by Italy and then Germany until eventually being liberated at the end of the war by Allied forces. So, after the Second World War, the old traditions had started to be lost as the well, the human story in Corfu changed. People went, well, this is a new era. It's gone from being farmers and traders to tourism. And I think when it was one of
0: the first places, you know, post-World War II where tourism started up pretty quick. Tourism has been a pretty solid part of Corfu life. For just just many, many, many years. Since so, the
1: 1960s. Exactly. Yeah, it was just a, a better industry to make money than relying on a subsistence lifestyle and selling some crops. Yeah. Selling olive oil, selling olives, etc. We caught up with Vasiliki Karunu from Ambalonas Vineyard Restaurant and Cooking Class. And we asked her a little bit about what happened to Corfiat Cuisine since the 1960s and also about the project she's been running for the last 15 or 20 years, to try and bring back traditional dishes of Corfu into the popular culture.
2: Tourism in Corfu started early 60s. And the locals, for some reason, instead of keeping the traditional cuisine, they just gave up and started cooking more international cuisine. Because they thought that was a way to have better communication, food-wise, with the visitors. So when I started looking around to see what we do about, you know, what foods we offer, so it would be something really traditional, one, four, five recipes. One of mm. those was sofrito. I wasn't happy with that. <laughs> so I started doing an extensive research of, you know, family archives, municipal archives, and the findings were amazing. You see, Corfit Cuisine has received influences from all over it's unique in many aspects. Like influences start from North America, India, England, France, Russia. And all these influences have been mixed up in a way that even though some dishes, they have their original names where they come from, they're not compatible with the original ones. And that was the locals, the local cooks, always they were very creative. So they would take different aspects and mix them up with their own ingredients and their own cooking style. So we have all this variety. You see, the most of forfeit recipes have Venetian names, like sofrito. Mm. Sofrito means slowly fried, and this is a recipe, but also it's a cooking process because sofrito you can do vegetables, you can do meat. So it's it's the process. So I ended up finding so much information that in the middle of my way, I decided to write a cookbook. A book, actually, summarizing all this, you know, gastronomic history of Corfu and the influences starting from 1400 up to more recent days. And also all these, you know, very interesting recipes I found.
1: So as we said before, for the cuisine in Corfu, the Venetians definitely left the strongest influence, as well as the Greeks, of course, because it was uh, Greek for many years in between all these different occupations. Many of the names of dishes in Corfu today still have a sort of Venetian history to the name. We'll talk about some of those dishes as we go through this episode. But influences from all around the world have actually helped to mould the cuisine of Corfu, into something completely unique. It's not really just Greek cuisine at all. It's definitely Corfiat cuisine. Um, So Vasiliki, who we just spoke to, she published her own book on Corfiat cuisine after doing all her research to discover all these traditional dishes. And in it, she describes the three biggest influences on Corfu over time, not as cultures that influenced, not like the Venetians, but as ages that represented three specific individual influences. Starting with the most ancient, Homer, the age of Homer and the Iliad, not uh, Homer and the Simpsons, I don't think.
0: I'm of that generation. That's exactly where my brain goes.
1: Yeah. So, Homer Simpson, donuts on Corfu, important, right?
0: Totes. Totes. It, it, they're everywhere. And duff beer.
1: <laughs> Corfu, <laughs> Move duff over, beer. Corfu,
0: beer. <laughs> but over, Corfu, beer.
1: But, yeah, Homer represents the ancient Greek traditions of wine, olives, olive oil, honey, bread, herbs, figs, pears and pomegranates which are uh, still like the everywhere. best things in life. Yeah, yeah. Of course, the the oldest traditions are still some of the best. And those products were so important in Greek mythology that they even have different gods associated with them. So for bread, the god Demetra. Mm. She's the bread queen. Mm. Goddess of bread.
0: I should be her friend.
1: You might also want to be friends with Athena, the goddess of olive oil.
0: Are you noticing a trend that they're all women? So like the got- women goddesses of Greek mythology, just rock because we're all about bread, olive oil, just mm. awesome, good times, awesome, good foods.
1: I might be upsetting your um, your chain of events there because uh, Dionysus, the famous god of wine and theatre, uh, is a bit of a naughty boy. And yeah, so no, he's, he's also a important. scoundrel. He is a, he's scoundrel, a scoundrel, but That's he's the all. scoundrel everyone loves because he's a god of wine. Exactly. Everyone's friends with Dionysus, surely. Or Dionysus, I still haven't figured out which it is, but I think it's Dionysus.
0: Oh, is it? I've always said Dionysus.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't know, but you know, people will write in and complain, so we'll find out. It's
0: all right. He's the bad boy of the god world, and you know, everyone likes a bad boy. Exactly.
1: Now, after the ancient traditions of the gods and those traditional products, Marco Polo and the, uh, the trading world, the Venetian world that opened up the spice box to Corfu Venetian trade brought all these different spices through like black pepper, cinnamon, cloves, cumin, nutmeg, and ginger. And that really transformed the traditional food because it added all these new flavors that they'd never seen before.
0: Yeah, definitely. When you look at a lot of the recipes, uh, which we're going to get into a little bit, like a bit more of like the actual traditional foods and the recipes, they wouldn't be anything today if it wasn't for the influx of those spices.
1: It's that combination of spices with traditional cooking and Venetian influence that has made coffee cuisine so unique. So it's really important. Finally, the last stage, the last age of the evolution of cuisine in Corfu, the Columbus stage, basically foods from the new world. I mean, you forget sometimes that things like tomatoes and eggplant, zucchini, bell peppers, and even things like potatoes, corn, these are all things that came from the new world. And so, they didn't have any of this in Corfu cuisine until mo- much more recently, the last few hundred years. And you can barely imagine Greek cuisine without things like zucchini and tomatoes in it.
0: Yeah, exactly. And eggplant.
1: It's just become such an important part of it. So, the cuisine of Corfu is Mediterranean at its heart, of course, but uh, distinctly Corfea in its soul, I would say. It, it, yeah, it really is different. It feels Mediterranean, but it feels different.
0: Exactly. It's like the Corfea way of making their food with a solid lashing of olive oil and wine. <laughs>
1: Totally. Now, Corfu is, as we mentioned right at the start, a very green island. So unlike other Greek islands that are much drier, there is more sort of moisture going on. There's a lot of growing of fruit and vegetables on the island, which uh, does lead to the use of that in a lot of their cooking. It is a very vegetable heavy diet, which is great. So if you are in Corfu, you can go and try one of the biggest seasonal menus of traditional Corfuet dishes. The interview of Vasiliki just now about her restaurant Ambalonas and about the history of Corfu. It's just 15 minutes drive from Corfu town to visit her. And you'll get some panoramic views from the farmhouse right on the top of the hill. And you also have the opportunity to take a cooking class, which is what we did. So we got to chat with her. We asked her about all these different dishes. We got to try making some of them. It's really fantastic. Definitely a place worth visiting. Even if you don't want to cook, you can just go and eat a meal there and you'll get really traditional food.
0: Yep. And it's a gorgeous space as well. It's just a really cool place to go and hang out. I'd probably, I mean, it's not too far out of Corfu, so you could get a taxi out there. But uh, if you can get like a lift out there or. Something, you know, go enjoy the atmosphere, have a couple of drinks, have a great meal or do the cooking class and then uh, head back to Corfu Town.
1: Mm -hmm. So check out our full article on Corfu food. Of course, we'll be talking about some of these dishes as we go through, but we do have an article with even more detail in it as well. You get some more information about the Ambalonis restaurant and cooking class and about things we're going to discuss in this episode. So jump over to foodfundtravel.com slash Corfu podcast, all one word, and you will get some more information there, which would be awesome. So coming up more in this episode, we talk in depth about some of the most famous traditional dishes from Corfu, as well as some of our favorite places to eat on Corfu. But first, let's talk about some of the local products, because they are an important part of the cuisine, and it's, it's good to get a bit of an overview of some of these before we get into the actual dishes, because these ingredients are going to feature really heavily in the stuff we talk about. Definitely. All right. Uh, ingredient number one. I don't even know if you call this an ingredient. It's more of an essential. It's wine.
0: <laughs> well, it's the elixir of life.
1: How many dishes do you think, out of everything we ate in Corfu, the many times we've been to Corfu, had wine in them?
0: It had wine always served with wine.
1: Yeah. Almost every single dish had wine in it. Yeah. Especially anything that's slow-cooked, wine. It's slow-cooked in wine. I don't think there's anywhere I've been that has featured wine that heavily in the actual food.
0: That's true. And then also we discovered when we were there that there is this, these Corfu Strands of grapes that actually are so local from the area that are starting to get used more and more as well, and that uh, very local flavors are going to really sort of you know change the food.
1: Yeah, we visited Nicoluzu Winery, and Nicoluzzo, the Mr. Nicoluzu himself, is actually on the hunt to find traditional grapes that have been lost.
0: Yeah, so dead set, like just with his bare hands, yeah, is just digging through the jungle looking for these long lost. Uh, different grape varieties that are are from Corfu.
1: Yeah, so he's been on a hunt to find these things and he's been creating new wines, well, old wines. He's been creating old wines that no one else is producing and some of the varieties we tried at his winery were basically impossible to find anywhere else. He's the only person using those grapes. He's the only person cultivating them. In the future, that might change. Maybe other people will be using those grapes again. But yeah, he's been on this crazy mission on his hands and knees searching through fields to find grape varieties that just aren't properly recorded and aren't properly cultivated. Oh,
0: it's impressive.
1: These are some unusual grape varieties that I'm probably going to pronounce completely wrong. So, Pavlo Cacciotrigi is a white wine. Seropudia, another white wine. Affioni, a red Corfu grape. And Matsavi, another red Corfu grape. There's loads of other ones as well. And these are all so unique that there's barely any other wineries in existence currently making these wines from these grapes. But even so, there's a a number of wines on Corfu. It is not an island famous for wines, but of course they do make wine in abundance and they like to drink it and put it in all the food. So wine is definitely an essential ingredient. Now, another one that won't be a surprise for a Greek island is of course olive oil.
0: Yes, but the surprising fact that we discovered about Corfu olive oil, I, I thought this was very shocking. And uh, is this something we're going to talk about now? Are we going to bring it up later? This is it. We're only going to mention olive
1: oil for a brief time on this episode because at some point we'll do a full olive oil history episode. I think that's a really good idea. It is
0: a big topic. But the thing that we kept discovering the more that we were hanging out on Corfu, and this isn't coming from us. This is definitely like what everyone was saying. They're like, just so you know, Corfu olive oil is kind of crap. We haven't been doing the right processes for years. We haven't been taking care of our trees. We've just let the olives fall onto the ground and i mean you know
1: into nets they collect them in nets they collect they, you them know, into
0: nets but they say like you know when's the best time to eat an apple is it when you pick it from the tree or when you pick it up off the ground like most people aren't picking apples up off the ground and going mm, you're like yeah worms <laughs> yeah so yeah it's this interesting fact that most people uh admit that Corfu olive oil has not been at its greatest for many, many years. But the interesting thing is that there are plenty of people who are trying to turn that around and they're trying to improve the reputation of Corfu olive oil.
1: Yeah, because as we mentioned in the 1960s, a lot of people started moving out of primary agricultural style industries and into tourism which meant that all those people who used to be making olive oil, used to be making wine, they all started working in tourism because there was more money in it. And so now all those traditions sort of got lost. And it was like, well, what's the point in doing this? Because we don't make a lot of money from this. So, they've been selling off the olives that they do have in low quality to Italy to be bottled in Italy to be charged for a higher price, rather than producing their own olive oil to a high standard.
0: Crazy. It's
1: really crazy. You just don't expect it from a a Greek island. No,
0: you really have this expectation that, like, olive oil throughout Greece is just, like, the best thing on the planet. It will cure everything. It's the best thing for you. But it turns out that is not the case at all.
1: No, but one place that we visited whilst we were on Corfu was the governor And that is an olive oil, I guess you call olive oil factory, but a home artisan factory. They're producing relatively small batches, but they're producing incredibly high quality olive oil that is bright green. This is no oh, weird old yellow olive oil. It's, it's crazy. It's like
0: radioactive grain.
1: Yeah, in the best possible way.
0: Yeah, so they're getting in there and this is what I was saying before, they're like getting in there before the olives drop. They've got these special machines that will like shake the trees so that they can collect the the olives without them like actually hitting the ground. And then they press them early on and you just get this oil that is vibrant and they've actually done a lot of scientific testing on it and it's proving that this particular olive oil Uh, consumed raw, they had a few discussions about the whole cooking olive oil thing and it turns out it's not as good for you. You don't want to cook olive
1: oil, you lose all the nutrients. All the
0: nutrients go once you cook it. So, they're saying like having it raw, having it on your salads, even just having a shot of (laughs) olive oil is doing things to improve breast cancer. It's like reducing the instances of breast cancer and also Alzheimer's disease, which I thought was fascinating.
1: Yeah. So, this is it. If you're buying cheap bulk olive oil from the supermarket and using it to cook, You're probably not getting all these benefits that people talk about when they talk about the Mediterranean diet. You might as well just buy cheaper oil. Yeah. Don't waste your time. But if you're buying high quality extra virgin olive oil and using it on salads, then you are going to get some of those health benefits. And if you're buying it from the governor, it's rather expensive. I think like a half litre of the really good top premium stuff is 40 euros, which is like 50 US dollars almost. That's a lot of money. Yeah. But But, they have their own
0: scientific stuff to show how much- Like quality and benefits that their particular olive oil has. So it's entirely up to you. And if that's what you want to uh, put your money behind, absolutely, because it is the thing to have.
1: Well, that's Corfu olive oil. We'll talk about olive oil in general in another episode. Let's talk about spices because I mentioned how important these were to the region. They have shaped the cuisine of Corfu since at least the 16th century when Venice was using Corfu as one of their main stop-off points from the East. So the trading routes came through there, as well as some other stops like Rhodes, Paphos, which is in Cyprus, and Koroni and Metoni, which are in the Peloponnese in southern Greece. Uh, but Corfu had some of the best fortifications in the entire region. So good, in fact, that the Ottoman Empire tried multiple times to take Corfu town, and they failed, and they eventually gave up. Unlike other areas close to Corfu on the mainland that were pretty much Ottoman for a few hundred years, Corfu remained of safe from Ottoman That's invasion. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. Because
0: not many people stood up and defeated the Ottomans, like, till they gave up. That's a bit of a rare occurrence.
1: Yeah, the Ottomans had to leave. They just couldn't beat the fortifications of Corfu. Um, as such, this meant that the trading routes flowed through Corfu on their way back to Venice, as it was a nice safe harbor for vessels to stop for repairs and to restock for more supplies, and of course, to trade these spices for whatever local things like olive oil and wine etc that were available so this led to a lot of spices from the east actually being offloaded in corfu and corfu being a bit of a hub for this in that area unlike other ports in greece that would not have had as many spices coming directly in so it meant that these spices were getting used in the local cuisine. Things like cinnamon, allspice, nutmeg, cloves, black pepper, ginger, etc. They've all become integrated into Coffee Cuisine, which is just giving it this unique spice profile to certain dishes that you just don't see in the rest of Greek cuisine. Also, another important ingredient or product is nubulu, which is the local pork loin. Some call it the sort of Parma ham of Corfu, but I would say it's more like sliced pork loin that has been cured. It doesn't have all the long fatty bits. It's not the full leg. It's more like the loin. So it's a bit leaner. Very similar though to uh, some of those pork loins that you can get throughout other countries in Europe, France, Italy, etc. Very small little slices. It's, Very all the tasty. Yums.
0: it's all the yums.
1: Yeah. It's salty. It's wonderful. It's porky and a little bit less of that fat strip that you get on a Parma ham style cured ham. All right. Now, another interesting ingredient that seems to have taken Corfu by storm in the last hundred years is the kumquat. So, what's going on with that?
0: Okay. So, kumquat is actually like a really interesting thing because it has come through that whole spice route sort of thing because it actually originates in China, Japan, and other Southern Asian countries. And if you actually don't know what a kumquat is, it's a citrus tree, similar to like a tiny little orange. In fact, the name in Cantonese for kumquat comes from gamguat, which literally means golden orange or golden tangerine. So, that's the English translation from Cantonese. Uh, And it's these tiny little oranges. But other than the oranges that you tend to know, uh, your navel oranges and stuff like that, these ones are quite bitter and Mm. sour to the taste. So, you can eat them and they do have a lot of health properties to them. But It's not the most enjoyable eating experience straight off the tree. So a lot of the places like Corfu that have embraced the kumquat, they found other ways of using it in their cooking rather than just eating it raw. So you would be looking at things like glazes, marmalades, salad dressings, jams, sweets. They also use it in their baked goods. So they make kumquat cookies. Mm-hmm. Definitely syrup. So, they make a kumquat syrup that they'll, they will uh, pour over their Greek yogurt. Yes.
1: So, basically, add a lot of sugar. Yeah. And there we go.
0: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, a lot of sugar is added. And to tell you the truth, these are, you know, used in cooking. There are a lot of things that you can do with it. But the majority of kumquats, in Corfu in particular, are all turned into liquor.
1: Yeah. So, it's all boozy kumquats. Yeah,
0: yeah. They, uh, they turn them into boozy kumquats. They take the skin of it, so it's actually not the fleshy part. The fleshy part generally is what tends to get turned into more of the sweets. They also use it in like perfumes and cosmetics and stuff like that. But they take the skin of it, they distill it, and they turn it into a kumquat liqueur. Mm. which is very tasty, and you will recognize it. If you are in Corfu, you'll see these bottles that are bright orange, and that is the kumquat.
1: Actually, the kumquat liqueur is something we tried because that's one of the few kumquat products I had whilst we were there, and we went to Lazarus Distillery to have a, a bit of a drink of that. And it's very tasty. I mean, once you add sugar to it and it balances out the bitterness, the kumquat mm. does taste pretty great. Exactly.
0: And it's become so popular that it actually has a PDO in Corfu right now, which is your protected designation of origin.
1: So, when exactly did kumquats come to Corfu and become important?
0: Okay. Really interesting doing a bit of research on this. I looked at a lot of different articles, and a lot of them claim to no know when kumquats came to Corfu, but they all have different dates. They all have different years, which is really weird. In fact, one of them in particular mentions that botanist Sidney Merlin was the first to bring kumquats to Corfu, and which he did. He was the person to do it. But I did find a couple of articles that said that he did it in 1860 Uh. was when they said he brought it over. But if you actually look up the botanist Sidney Merlin in his Wikipedia page, you will discover that he was born in 1856.
1: <laughs> so, it's a four-year-old stole fruit from China and <laughs> dropped it in Corfu by accident. So
0: it's very entrepreneurial four-year-old yeah. going on there. So, I think, yeah, it's got really confusing. Uh, a lot of people will agree that Robert Fortune is the man that brought kumquats to Europe Yeah, in general. And that happened uh, sort of like 1846, ish. Uh, but then it didn't happen that Cumquartz actually came over. They, they probably think that Merlin brought them over with him to his family's plantation. They sort of got popular around about the same time as he started the Washington Naval Orange, which is around about 1924. Uh, so that's what we heard. That's what we're, uh, from a lot of people on the island. That's where the 1924 comes from. So it's there's no actual exact date. They just kind of base it off when his naval orange plantation became really popular. And the way that we know he did that is because that particular brand of naval oranges are still called Merlin oranges, named mm. after him. So people just assume kumquats came around about the same time.
1: So sometime between 1864, 1860, and 1924.
0: Around, Yeah, they just yeah. came on over. But I did like the idea of the, uh, the savvy four-year-old
1: Hey, who knows? Maybe his parents own the plantation and the four-year-old just brought some fruit back and went, Daddy, can I grow this?
0: Yep, you never know.
1: Kids are crazy.
0: (laughs) Yes, for sure.
1: All right, now let's talk about some of the easiest to find traditional dishes. These are the ones that when you go out to pretty much any traditional taverna. Or restaurant on the island, you're going to see the name, or someone's going to tell you, oh, you're going to have to try this. This is like a coffee dish. You've got to try this. Yeah,
0: there's a couple of stanzas that you're going to get recommended no matter where you go.
1: Yeah, these are going to be easy to find. So, pastisado, also sometimes called pastisada, sometimes is- called
0: yum yum in my face.
1: <laughs> sure. <laughs> I didn't see that on the menu, but if you say so.
0: <laughs> yeah, Don't. there's no guarantees that if you ask for that at the restaurant, that it's the exact dish that you'll get. But, you know, you'll probably get something pretty good anyway. Do you have
1: yum yum in my face, please? <laughs> I, I'm not sure they're going to necessarily stock that. but
0: I reckon, and- I reckon any, any Greek taverna owner will uh, come up with something for you.
1: Probably be cheese-based. But still, this one's not cheese-based. Pastasado is a hearty red wine stew, of course. Wine, of course. Of course. Made traditionally with rooster, specifically, rather than just chicken. So, man chicken.
0: Man chicken. I thought that was interesting, yeah. Not yeah. too many dishes involve rooster, and it was, uh, it was...
1: Well, I mean, they make a lot of noise in the morning. they are like, all right, dinner. It's payback. It's yeah. payback. He's going in the pot. And the more fancy, expensive version is made with beef, and it's served with pasta. Mm -hmm. Sort of hence the name Pastisado. It's a a pasta slow-cooked dish. Now, we chatted with one of the chefs from our favorite restaurant in Corfu, Pomodoro, and he told us a little bit more about the history of the dish.
3: My name is Aristoteles Magoulas. I'm chef of restaurant Pomodoro Corfu. I will tell you a small uh, story about classic traditional recipe of Corfu. It's called Pastisado. Historically, Pastisado used to be made on a stove on the um, fireplace, so it was something that was also a bit smoky. And it was a stew that it was made on the mainland and in the villages with a rooster and in the city of Corfu with beef. The explanation of that is that villages which families were more poor, they used, to, they used rooster because that's what they could afford. They slow cooked it with wine, that was last year's wine that went acid. So the acidity helped also to tender the meat. And they used to give some sweetness to this acidity with a lot of onions. So it was a slow reduction of onions and wine. Of course the rooster. And um, they used a lot of herbs to give aromas, such as mint, rosemary or basil, depending from the season. Instead, the richest families, which were the noble families of Corfu, that could afford themselves to have beef, or in the big farms that they, use, uh, that they had uh, beef uh, to produce milk, they had uh, beef and uh, they did the same uh, uh, kind of cooking, but instead of herbs, they had spices. Every family had its own mix of spices, more or less with the same base, but everybody had its own uh, details. It was uh, considered such a priceless uh, thing that it was produced in pharmacies, and still in Corfu, in some pharmacies, they make their own mix of uh, spices for pasticciado, and uh, everybody has its own preference. So everybody thinks it makes the best pasta salad. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so that's the story about it.
1: So the spice blend that Aristoteles mentioned is called Specerico. Completely pronounced wrong.
0: Yeah, but that's, you know, it's kind of what we go for, Specerico. isn't it?
1: Specerico. Oh, yeah. I think Specerico.
0: I'm sure you sound Italian. Right? I'm
1: using an Italian. Well, I mean, they're part hey. Phoenician, part Greek influences. So who knows? Every version of this spice blend is a little bit different. But the general ingredients for the rich people, as opposed to the poor people, the people who could actually afford all the good spices, they would use cinnamon, paprika, allspice, nutmeg, cloves, and black pepper. Sometimes also cumin, and more recently, chili powder. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of spices all going in one dish. That's well, it a good blend. It makes
0: sense. It's a very- Full-flavored meal, very well bold and well-rounded. So it doesn't surprise me that there's that many spices in it.
1: No, exactly. Uh, it's really rich, and but not in a not in a way that feels heavy. In a way that no. just feels like
0: ooh, flavorful. Yeah. yeah.
1: So the word spezierico actually derives from the word spezieri, which means pharmacist, oh. as these spice blends were actually previously in history made to order. By pharmacies,
0: really? Yeah. Would you pick up, you know, pick up some of that uh, along with your snake oil?
1: Yeah, maybe a bit of snake oil. As we mentioned earlier, the spice trade was an essential part of Corfu life, and those spices were not just used for flavour, but considered important for health. And so, blends were made by pharmacists for medicinal purposes. So <laughs> it's like this will taste good, but it's also healthy for you. So pay more.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. Sales have been sales. You know, capitalism's been capitalism for many, many years. It's the
1: classic upsell of all the extra properties that these spices have. But I mean, spices are pretty good for you in general. Um, But this is why pharmacists at the time played such an important role in the spice trade on Corfu. Now, there's actually a pharmacy called Carmelas in Corfu town, which was founded in 1850 and is still running today. They're widely considered to produce one of the best speziercos on the whole island. And they combine at least 15 different ingredients into their top secret recipe.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: Yeah. So more than the ones I mentioned, there's some other ones in there as well. And you can actually go visit them and grab a packet of this spice mix for yourself. Rather than trying to improvise something, just go and get the best one. Then go make this dish at home.
0: Yeah, exactly. Save yourself the uh, time and the trouble and just. Whack it all in there in a pre-made spice mix. Exactly.
1: Now, although tomatoes are currently used in pastasado, the deep red colour comes not just from the tomatoes and the wine, but actually from the paprika as well. Oh, of course. Yeah, so that's very important. That's given that dish a really, really deep red colour. And it is. It's almost black red.
0: It's very red. You you don't want to spill that on a white blouse kind of red.
1: No. Uh, White tablecloths, probably best not try some of your older blue or black tablecloths. Wear a bib. Yeah, I think we should probably carry bibs everywhere we go (laughs) (laughs) because the amount of clothes we've stained.
0: We wear a lot of black, (laughs) let's be honest. White's not in our wardrobe rotation.
1: No, the foodie wardrobe is very specifically dark colours. So the original poor person's version of the dish would not have involved any of these spices. And in fact, it would have been herb heavy instead. So they would have used which other herbs were available in the season, whether that be thyme or oregano sage etc whatever they had growing at the time so essentially that basic version the original version is just a red wine stew with whatever local herbs they have but I think the spiced version that sort of came into existence over the years as the dish developed that's really what says Corfu cuisine today that's where things have changed they've taken the standard just red wine stew and turned it into something specifically Corfu agreed which is
0: 100 percent
1: and I also love the fact that they used to use the old red wine rather than the fresh red wine because it would have gone a little sour. So rather than chucking that out, they've got this red wine that's on the verge of turning the vinegar. It's still wine, but it's slightly sour. And you that balances out the sweetness of the vegetables and all the onions they put in the dish. And... It's, that's amazing. That's such a great use of stuff that they would have otherwise thrown out.
0: That was something that 100% really impressed me during the time that we were on Corfu. More and more people, like we went and visited different people who had, you know, different roles in the food industry and wine industry and whatnot. And all of them kept telling us about how they used everything. Like it was so important to them that everything... Got used or put back to the earth in some way. It was this full circle where nothing got wasted in any way, shape, or form. And I thought it was amazing just how versatile they had become in using these things uh, for, for so many different practices. Like it was really impressive.
1: Yeah, and we've started to see that in so many cultures we visit. The importance of these historic recipes has always been don't waste anything. Make, yeah. Make it's, not, it's not a
0: new sustainable thing. They've just always done it that way because you couldn't afford to waste things in the olden days. And it's something that should come back full fold today, I think.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, the pastasado is something that is rich in those spice flavors. It's great even in the summer though. Summer or winter, it's going to be a nice filling, wonderful dish. And it's available on most traditional taverna menus on Corfu. Outside of Corfu, never really seen it. No. I, think, I think you can get it occasionally, but yeah, it's very much a core food thing. And both locals and tourists love this dish. It's uh, definitely one for everybody. Mm-hmm. Now, the exact history and origin of this dish is a little bit unclear because, of course, red wine stews have been going on for as long as there have been red wine, meat and cooking. Yeah. I think a very long time. Thousands of years, I expect. Now, the rooster itself, part of the chicken family, of course, man chicken, came from Asia. And arrived in East Europe around 3000 BC. So at the very earliest, maybe they'd started to do this dish with chicken, herbs, and red wine. Sometime around 3000 BC, maybe. That's so long ago. Uh, I mean, it's probably unlikely it was happening that early, but you know, Good. after that time, could yeah. have been going on pretty soon after that. And um, the spice trade, of course, came a lot later with Venetian rule, as did a lot of the pasta. Greek uh, cuisine did have. Some proto forms of pasta as well, which may have influenced Italy's pasta and vice versa. So maybe there was some pasta on Corfu, but definitely during Venetian rule was when pasta became an, an essential part of the cuisine. So uh, it's possible that the current modern dish began evolving around about the 15th century with the addition of tomato paste and paprika coming a little bit later on as those ingredients made it from the Americas. Mm, indeed. Now let's talk about one of the other biggest dishes that you were going to see on Corfu menus. Sofrito or sofrito, As Vasiliki from Ambalonis mentioned in the clip at the start of this episode, sofrito is one of the most popular dishes in Corfu, and it's available pretty much everywhere. Oh
0: yeah, you'll see it on every menu and if you ask anyone what should I have, that's what they're going to recommend to you pretty much.
1: Yeah, now the name itself sofrito, refers both to the dish and to the cooking style which in Italian means to slowly fry. So a classic sofrito in Italy or Spain or France may include things like onions, carrots and celery fried very slowly. If you go as far as Cuba, which we did, you will find sofrito using onions and bell peppers. So the style has been transported around the world. It is just that slow frying of normally vegetables specifically. But in Corfu, the main ingredients are not vegetables, unlike almost everywhere else. Uh, the main ingredient is beef.
0: They do like their beef.
1: They, they've got uh, definitely today, of course, beef is more of a, an expensive meat that poorer people on the island wouldn't have had. But today, beef is very available. And so beef has become the main meat used in Sofrito. But the vegetable element of the Sofrito is basically garlic. And herbs, mainly parsley.
0: Which is crazy because Corfu was really vegetable heavy in a lot of their other dishes. But apparently with this one, they went, nah, we're yeah. good.
1: It's crazy. A lot of a lot of garlic. I mean, we're talking at least two cloves per portion of beef. Bring it. At least, probably more. Uh, this makes for a very meaty and pungent dish, of course. Make
0: sure you're dining with friends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and only and only kissing loved ones who really really love you
1: share the garlicky fun with everybody else Indeed. otherwise they're going to be a bit upset uh, Corfu actually has its own endemic garlic variety called cacavilla or cacavilla, very small bulbs with a fine reddish purple skin so that said, when we went and cooked this, we didn't get the local garlic. I'm sure it's very rare. It's obviously Chinese garlic, et cetera, is everywhere now. So that's what people are buying. It's cheap. But uh, originally, they would have been making this dish with their own garlic, which is pretty cool. I like that, yeah. yeah. So, if you are using the Corfu variety of garlic, because it would be very small cloves, you would need more than two. But if you're just using regular imported garlic, well, it does two depend on
0: how pungent that local garlic is. Apparently,
1: the local garlic is not as strong.
0: Okay, so then pile it in.
1: Chinese Chinese garlic is famed for its uh, very strong nature. Also, some ingredients in sofrito. You can guess the first one. It's wine. What specifically white wine on this occasion? As I mentioned, parsley is the main herb olive oil, of course, salt and pepper. And that's it. That's really, it's really simple. It's just a slow cooked beef with all of this garlic and white wine.
0: Well, you know, it just proves, and and Greek food a lot of the time is this, it's like simple food is the best food. Exactly. Coming up, a Corfiat seafood favourite.
1: Plus, honeybees that drink tree resin, a sweet and salty dessert that rocked our world. The next dish is something that the locals were just going on and on about every time we spoke to people. Um, the pastasada and the sofrito are so famous that I think maybe this third dish is something that the locals are like, "Ah, oh, come on, we've had those other dishes so much. This is the one we want. It's called fish bianco.
0: So, I was going to say whitefish, but... I don't I don't think Bianco means white at
1: all. Well, in Italian, it definitely means white. And it I does. guess the tradition came from there. Yes. So, yeah, in Greek, it doesn't really. But as we said earlier, a lot of the dishes are named with Italian and Venetian words. Yep. So- and of course,
0: we've been talking about really meat-heavy dishes. And we're on an island. So, seafood is a massive part of Corfu cuisine. So, now talking
1: about the fish yeah essentially fish bianco is a fish simmered with white wine (laughs) are you surprised it's got wine no surprises Uh, on a bed of potatoes that's it so yeah slightly more modern i guess it might have been simmered on a different bed of different vegetables before the potato arrived but these days definitely potatoes with lots of garlic and olive oil
0: hey hey
1: wine garlic and olive oil no messing around there
0: it's the perfect trifecta
1: yeah, and salt, of course, and cloves, actually. So that's cloves. what gives it its a little bit of just a different hint. Normally, it also has cloves in. Oh, there so, you go. yeah, that's not something you expect to have in like a, a light fish dish.
0: But it definitely was something that we said to people. We're like, what is your favorite local food? And a lot of people did say fish bianco.
1: Yeah, exactly. The potatoes are left to simmer and soften. That's the first stage. And then they chuck in the fish, which is something normally like sea bass. Uh, Greek sea bass is called lavraki, uh, which is super tasty. We actually had some lavraki sashimi. That
0: was amazing. In
1: Corfu. Yeah, very good.
0: Never did I think that I would have one of the best sashimi meals of my life in Corfu, and that the favourite fish that I had was the local fish. Oh, that was so good.
1: Yeah. So... We had a fantastic Lavraki sashimi at the La Veranda restaurant at Corfu Holiday Palace. Um, the sushi restaurant actually has a slightly different name, but it's on the same location. So, if you turn up any day apart from Monday, I believe Monday they're closed. Yes. Every other day, they're open for sushi and sashimi. And, yeah,
0: and you can go for some sashimi great. and sushi and don't feel guilty about it because it's totally local. Yeah. Ish. Really <laughs> <laughs> no, it's worth it. Do it.
1: So, yeah. I mean, they throw this sea bass onto the potatoes that have already been cooking for a little while. And then they throw a little bit of liquid on, maybe a bit more white wine, maybe a bit of water to make sure the fish is covered, so that the dish continues cooking, and they turn the heat down and they let the fish get a little bit soft. then they zest it up with some lemon, a bit of parsley, black pepper, and they actually add some flour just to thicken up the sauce at the end after it thickens that is it it's a zesty seafood favorite <laughs> a favorite a favorite a favorite well, there you go that's what you want. <laughs> So, of course, simmering and baking seafood or meat on top of potatoes has become this really traditional thing down the Dalmatian coast. They've got it in Montenegro. They've got it in Croatia. It's definitely an important thing, but everyone has their own slight version.
0: But i got to say, around these regions, they do taters good. Yeah. It's not just like, because you know how some places you can go to and you're like, oh, it's boiled potato, and it just tastes like they boiled a potato. But in this region- they do taters good.
1: Lemon. Yeah. And a correctly cooked potato. That's what boiling a potato comes down to here. That's mm-hmm. what makes it good. Makes the difference. And actually, a fun fact, on September 14th each year, the island of Corfu recognizes the religious festival of the Exaltation of the cross. And for this, they use salt cod instead of something like sea bass and to make their fish bianco. So everyone eats fish bianco with salt cod, 14th of September every year. Oh, there you go. There you go. It's a big old... Fish feasts in September. Mm-hmm. All right, let's talk about another dish. This one is with veal.
0: Veal fricando. Now, this was an interesting little delve into I don't know what. <laughs> yeah. Because a lot of these meals that we're talking about, we sort of just assume that they have some sort of Italian influence that have come to Corfu in some way or another. And It's kind of true, but it's kind of not. It was really interesting that you mentioned earlier that there was French rule in 1797. And I don't know if this dish possibly came from that. I'm Mm. not saying yes or no. It just kind of popped into my head and I was like, oh, I didn't know it was French rule. Anyway, let's start from the beginning. Okay, so veal fricando, it's like a loin of veal that's been larded and braised or roasted. And it usually is like a sort of stew dish quite often with mushrooms. Now, I looked this up and I kept going down these rabbit holes of different information because it's a a massively popular dish in Catalonia. Like The Catalans will be like, this is our dish. Absolutely. But then there's some French people that are like, this is our dish. And then there's some people from Switzerland that are like, no, 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 this is our dish. So, I was getting really confused as to where it actually came from. So, What I eventually tracked it down to was that the word fricando comes from the Occitania language. It's O-C-C-I-T-A-N-I-A, Occitania, I think, which was a region many, many, many years ago that was the southern third of France, as well as Catalonia, Monaco, smaller parts of Italy. And some parts of Switzerland as well. And it's oh. this language that comes from this region. And this is where the name of fricando comes from. Interesting. And the dish itself seems to be dating back to at least medieval times. So it's a really, really old dish. Actually, the first written recipe of it belongs to Catalan and it was in the beginning of the 18th century.
1: Yeah, so way after where the tradition says it came from.
0: Exactly. So, they didn't write it down down for a really long time. Because it
1: was pretty simple stuff.
0: It's a pretty simple dish, yeah. Yeah, so I was trying to figure out, like, if there was some Venetian, you know, influence, but I think there is that part of Italy that was part of this region, so you could have been influenced by immigrants from there, could have been French immigrants that came down and sort of, or even during, as I said, the time when the French owned Corfu. They could have introduced it then. Um, It could have
1: spread across Italy to Venice and then to Corfu that way as well. I mean, this is something that's been around for a while.
0: Exactly. So, I just kept going down these rabbit holes of different regions of where they make this dish. But, you know, it basically is veal that's stewed with mushrooms.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's it.
0: And that's it. But it's really interesting. I had never heard of this particular language or these people before, but apparently they immigrated a lot to these different regions and um, took some of their foods with them as well. And it has made it all the way to Corfu.
1: Well, and there you go. And now it's a relatively popular dish. Not the most popular, but definitely in the top 10. So it's something you will find in some menus, not all menus.
0: Yeah. But today, if you're going to find whoever like really has a claim to it, I would go to Catalan.
1: All right veal fricando Mm
0: -hmm.
1: controversial dish as many of the dishes on the dish podcast are
0: every time i research that, i thought this would be really simple i'm like oh it's beef and mushrooms veal and mushrooms this is really easy and i'm like reading up in like translating all this spanish script and all this other stuff and i'm like where does this dish come from (laughs) this is insane but i really do enjoy doing all this research i find it truly fascinating
1: All right, from a meat dish to a veggie dish, as we said, Corfu is another one of those Greek islands that is vegetable-heavy. Yes, they do have plenty of meat these days, but historically people who had less money would not have had lots of meat to eat. They'd have have to be pretty sparing with it. So something that would have made way to fill those bellies when there wasn't any meat on the table were the vegetable pies, also known as zorka. One of the simplest farmer foods, of course, made with seasonal vegetables, sometimes with a pastry shell, sometimes without. Now, depending on the season that you are there, you will get different dishes. It's basically as simple as that. So maybe you'll get a zucchini pie. Maybe you'll get a pumpkin pie in the autumn. Maybe you'll get an onion pie. Of course, cheese pies. Yes. Mm. So maybe more of a winter thing when there aren't as many vegetables around, you just use you, the cheese.
0: You can have cheese any time of year. It doesn't have to be winter.
1: Well, that's true. But when you've got the fresh vegetables, you've got to use them. So you've got to do something with them. Make a pie. With cheese. Oh, yeah. You can add... I think you should, and I think everyone does, add cheese to almost all of these pies. Yeah,
0: I've never seen it not added.
1: But there's lots of different pies in Greek cuisine. And so pretty much any taverna you go to, you're going to find some sort of pie on the menu. But different types of pies reflect different parts of the country. So you've got things like spanakopita, which is spinach pie, tyropita, mm. which is cheese pie normally made with a phyllo dough. And yeah, I mean, these are things you can find all over the place. So the lines do blur a little bit between what is a Corfea pie and what is just a Greek pie and which islands they come through. But a pastry-heavy pie with lots of cheese inside, that's not really the Corfeet style. So that's something you're going to be finding more on the mainland. If you're looking for more of a Corfeet style pie, we're talking about things like the zucchini pie and vegetable pies with, with or without pastry, not filo necessarily, just a light pastry base or no pastry at all we actually went to bioporos organic farm in the south of corfu where we made a zucchini pie ourselves, just using vegetables that were 100 percent organic straight off the farm and this farm sits on the banks of lake corision where we saw flamingos if you're there at the right time of year just I flamingos didn't even know
0: they had flamingos in no. corfu
1: they weren't very pink they were sort of more gray well it depends, it depends on the eat.
0: crustaceans they have yeah. to eat
1: But yeah, we turned up and we took a little cooking class and we made some family-style dishes and enjoyed them with the family who run the farm, which was awesome. All those homegrown ingredients they're bringing into the kitchen every day. It was an
0: amazing meal.
1: Really fantastic. They made um, the pastasado that we talked about earlier. They made it with beef and some spices and red wine, but we helped them make the pie. And so we grated up all the vegetables. So, it's a little bit different. I mean, I'm used to chopping up vegetables to throw into pies or into quiche or whatever, but they grate everything so it turns into this this big, goopy, awesome mess of everything. I was
0: interested in the fact that they added in tomatoes and they grated it in skin at all. Yeah. Because well, generally people would like, I don't know, you'd think you would boil the tomato and then remove the skin and then grate it in? I don't know. But they just no, just hey, fine. Everything goes
1: in. Don't waste it. No, everything goes Don't in. Don't waste it. I think one of the most interesting parts of the cooking experience was the amount of herbs they threw into this one pie. I mean this pie made enough portions for maybe eight people, and they threw an entire cup of chopped, fresh and dried herbs, including mint, parsley, maybe a little bit of thyme. I think it was dill. And dill because yes. I've been
0: raving about dill all summer. Definitely oh my goodness. Goodness. Dill has been my herb of the season. Mm-hmm. Loved it.
1: I can't. I just can't believe how many herbs were in it. Because normally, if we make a pie, we're like, "Oh, we'll sprinkle of herbs at the end." The entire pie is based around the amount of herbs.
0: Yeah, and it wasn't overly herby. Like it, it, no, it
1: was perfect. It's surprising because I guess there are a lot of very fresh herbs. It's not just dried herbs. Exactly. Less intense. I
0: think the absolute difference is between using fresh ingredients and dried ingredients. Because dried ingredients tend to overpower it, and they and it leaves like you like you bite into a bit of it, and you'll be like, ah. ah dried oregano sticking in my teeth.
1: (laughs) Instead, these are obviously perfectly crunchable bits of fresh herbs.
0: Yes. Easily washed down with a glass of wine.
1: Oh, there was definitely wine. No wine in the pie. So that was a surprise. Mm. It's one of the few dishes in this entire list that didn't have wine in it. But... Yeah, but we drank wine simple. while
0: making it, so does that, that kind of counts. Yeah,
1: wine while making it, wine whilst eating it. Yeah, I think there just has to be wine on the table at some point. Obviously, they mixed in some cheese and eggs as well, because that helps hold everything together. And if you were someone making this dish with a little bit more money, apparently it is traditional to add some spices. Once again, cloves seems to be uh, something that they add into things. Just a little bit of cloves just brings that sort of heat, almost uh, yep. warmth to the dish. And, of
0: course, the thing to mention about this particular farm is that they are 100% organic.
1: Yes, very much 100% organic. So that all these vegetables were coming off the farm. Not every ingredient they have is from their farm, but they make sure that they source things from places that are organic. So they're bringing in organic ingredients, but they're making their own honey. And one awesome tip that we had when making the pie, the way to stop a pie with that many vegetables getting soggy is to put either rice or some rolled oats in the actual mix, and it soaks up all the liquid as it cooks. Awesome, because soggy pies are the worst. Oh, it's the
0: worst, and I'd never thought of doing that, and I've made plenty of soggy pie, I hate to admit.
1: Yeah, because I never realized, you just throw in a handful of rice, done, Yeah, and you barely even notice it's in the pie, it doesn't change the flavor, but it soaks up all that liquid straight away, it's fantastic. These
0: are, you know, you call them like old wives' tales, sort of. But they're, they're true.
1: When they work,
0: When yeah. then it's not an old <laughs> wives'
1: tale. It's just a fantastic tip.
0: Yeah, everyone should know that.
1: So, Bioporus Farm, it, it was a really tranquil place. It's great. Uh, we asked them about what their goals were as an organic farm, and they really just want people to visit to be educated about leading an organic life, which is what they're doing. And, uh, of course, they also want to share some of their home recipes and hope that people can turn up and enjoy that and, and learn a few new things about how it can be living a little bit more sustainably. So, you can learn a bit more about Biopera's Farm on our blog on foodfundtravel.com slash Corfu podcast. Now, of course, eating at a traditional taverna is an essential part of any foodie trip to Corfu or Greece, because that, that's really what Greek cuisine and the Greek food experience is about, is going to a proper family-run taverna where they're making up some local food, home-cooked style. Homemade so, wine. Yes, homemade wine, another important part not just getting wine out of uh, a regular bottle that's been mass-produced. We're talking about that restaurant, their family made this wine. So we headed up into the hills of Corfu to find a local favourite taverna that has been open since 1960.
2: I'm Elizabeth. I'm the granddaughter of the great-grandmother uh, Elizabeth. She started this taverna since 1960, and the rest of the family now will continue this tradition. Uh, you are in uh, the beautiful uh, village of Dukades, and you are always welcome to, to taste our traditional, this is like sofrito, pastitsada, rabbit stifado, saganaki of the grandmother, of and uh, whatever else you like.
1: So at Taverna Elizabeth, in the village of Dukades, they are cooking up lots of different classic Greek dishes, but also some from Corfu, but our favourite dish of everything we tried there actually was more of a Greek classic rather than a Corfu classic. It was rabbit stufado.
0: Yeah. So, the stefato is something that you're probably going to see on a lot of the menus, in particular in Corfu. Also, if you happen to be on the island of Crete, you're going to see it a lot there as well. So, stefato is pretty much just the word for Greek stew. In these particular regions, they happen to make it with rabbit. I think rabbit is a delicious meat. It's really great, but they can also make it with beef as well.
1: Or chicken. Or chicken. They do make it with chicken sometimes. Yeah,
0: So it's similar to like a casserole, and it has caramelized onion, tomatoes, and spices, which is usually your cinnamon and cloves. So obviously, this is a dish that is post-16th century, because we've got that Influence of tomatoes and we've got those really rich spices in there as Although, well I
1: reckon before the sixteenth century they'd have just made it without the tomatoes because I'm guessing there's some wine in it
0: <laughs> <laughs> so yes you are correct the actual word stufado comes from stufado stu sounds like stew Stufado exactly so that was a dish that was brought to the Greeks by the Venetians in the thirteenth century after the fall of Constantinople and before the Ottoman invasion.
1: Around about that period. You remember that time? So, that's around the 15th century, late 15th century.
0: Exactly. Of course, yes, as you just mentioned, it did not contain tomatoes at that time. No, No, but uh, they came over with the Spanish in the 16th century when they headed over to the Americas and went, oh, look at this. That looks yummy. Let's take that back with us. And then tomato flourished across Europe. It's just a really popular dish. I don't know why. I think it's just... It is comfort food. If you want Corfu comfort food, a hearty meal that warms the whole, your belly and your whole soul, then rabbit stafato is the dish to go with. I think it's just, it's a hug. It's a hug and a meal.
1: Mm, Yeah, it, it is good. And at Taverna Elizabeth, they are using the traditional recipes that Grandma Elizabeth brought to the restaurant when she opened it in the 1960s.
0: Exactly. And this place has been so popular since then, which, you know, if you know anything about longevity of restaurants anywhere in the world, to be open since 1960 is insane. That just proves that they are putting love and consistency into every single dish that they they serve to all of their customers.
1: Yeah, because they're way off the beaten track. So, once again, it's a fantastic stew With rabbit, I mean rabbit's fantastic. It beats chicken every time for me. It's just people get a little little funny about
0: rabbit, and I don't understand. Like if they're cute. Yeah. If you're a meat eater, you're a meat eater and you're gonna have to just suck it up. It's cute, but it's tasty. Duck's kinda cute too, but I'll eat the shit out of that.
1: Mmm duck. (laughs) (laughs) No duck staffado on the menu, but let's talk about one final dish that is a dessert, because we haven't done any desserts yet. It's a Greek classic, normally served as a starter but the version we had had been transformed into a dessert. Best of all, every item in the dish was sourced locally to make this a corfiat twist on a Greek national favorite. Graviera cheese, saganaki with honeycomb at Pomodoro Restaurant. Saganaki cheese made by frying a piece of cheese in a saganaki frying pan. It has to be the right type of cheese, though, for it to go melty and crispy at the same time without any batter or breading or anything on the outside. It's just the natural cheese going crispy, which is amazing.
0: Probably one of the best things we had the entire time we were on the island. The unique thing about this dish, the chef actually sources out the cheese every single year to find out which one is going to have the best melting consistency. So he doesn't go with the same producer every single year, but he does go with the same honey farmer. The unique thing about the honey is that when bees have no access to the pollen of flowers, they actually tend to go towards the trees and they will suck out the resin of the trees, which makes a really dark, thick, almost molasses type of honey. This is what they use with this cheese and it will rock your freaking world
1: yeah it's covered in the honey as well as a faux honeycomb made from the honey so it's like a double up the cheese is creamy salty and that beautiful sweetness and the crispy crunch of that honeycomb amazing
0: you know how we mentioned Homer before
1: (sighs) that is it for this episode but there is more we had so much to talk about with the Coffee at Cuisine that we have decided to add a 15 minute bonus episode to our Podbean Patreon account. So, yes, if you want to support this podcast and keep us on the air, as well as get access to early release versions of new episodes, bonus episodes, and extra bits from main episodes like this one, then you can do that from only $1.50 per month, which would be super awesome.
0: Absolutely. It's like buying us a beer.
1: So, just jump onto foodfuntravel.com/slash extras and you can become a patron of the show and get access to those bonuses instantly, as well as into the future for as long as you are a patron. But we hope you've enjoyed a look at some of the most famous Corfu dishes and their histories. We talk about some of the lesser known dishes and some of our favorite restaurant dishes in that bonus Corfu episode.
0: Yeah, I we've been to Corfu quite a few times, and this is actually the first time we've Really, sort of promoted it because we kind of wanted to keep it as our own little secret. We're like, nobody can come here. All the food is for us. Don't let anybody know.
1: Quite a lot of people have been going there since the 60s. So I think we failed in keeping it a secret. Yeah. They kind of but, started you know, it before
0: we were even born. So what are you going to do?
1: Yeah. But the food has been outstanding almost. And continues all the time. to impress
0: me. Yeah. Every time I go back. I'm always impressed by how good the food is. It's really outstanding.
1: Yeah, we've been there maybe five times, I think, now. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we love it. We love it. The weather, especially throughout the season, from sort of April through to early October, is pretty consistently great. And the food has just been fantastic every time. So, you know, if you want crystal blue water, great food, unusual Greek dishes that are not the same as the rest of Greece, that are a bit of a fusion with Venetian then this is the place you should go.
0: Exactly. Get off the Greek beaten path. You know, Santorini and Mykonos are done to death. Go and discover a brand new Greek island that's going to rock your foodie world. And it still has that crystal blue water and amazing nature that is going to absolutely take your breath away. So, you know... Save yourself the tourist hassle and go check out Corfu.
1: It's still a little touristy. Corfu town itself gets a few cruise ships in, but the rest of the island is surprisingly calm, peaceful, and fun.
0: Yep. So- we hired a car with Hertz and just drove around with our GPS. You will need a GPS. Oh my goodness, you can get so lost. But if you get lost, you can find the most amazing hidden beaches as well. It's a crazy world, but highly recommend hiring a car and going exploring more of the island outside of old Corfu town, which, as Tom just said, can get a little hectic with the cruise ship passengers. But it's a
1: beautiful place to go to Corfu Town and the Venetian history of that old city and the fortress. Definitely worth seeing, but just be aware it's a little busy. The rest of the island, fantastic. And of course, Corfu Town, because it's so busy, some of the best restaurants are there. For our list of restaurant suggestions, as well as places to do cooking classes and links to all the foodie locations that we mentioned in this episode, head to foodfuntravel.com slash podcast. And you will also find that all of these locations are listed on our Corfu map, which features every single place that we visited and enjoyed whilst we were in Corfu, of as course, well as a few extra secrets. We're not
0: just going to leave you on your own and go, no. good luck, go find it on your own. We've done an entire article on our most recent visit to Corfu and also a map to go along with it that you can download and use offline.
1: Offline might be tricky, but if you've got 4G, which you should have if you're heading over to Corfu because they've got some pretty good internet connection over there, then you can actually use this map live. And that makes it a lot easier than trying to note down all these places and search for them because the map's just there. So you just click on stuff, you just type it in and it goes, oh yeah, this is Tom's suggestion. This is Meg's suggestion. Easy, straight up. Um, So yeah, this is the end of this episode. You can go and find more information at foodfuntravel.com slash Corfu podcast. You can actually go and grab that map for free as well. So you can find all of these foods and all of these restaurants and some accommodation options as well. Of Lots course. of different things that we found in Corfu.
0: If you have any further questions about Corfu, email us at Megzi at foodfuntravel.com and we can answer to the best of our ability. Uh, any questions that you have about Corfu, where to stay, what to eat, what to do. Uh, we as we said, we've been there a ton of times and we're happy to help you guys out plan your Corfu trip.
1: And if you want to help support our podcast, which would be super awesome because it means that we can make more podcasts. If people help support us with this, we will be doing more food research. We'll be going to more places and discovering unique dishes that are hard to find. And you can support us by going to foodfundtravel.com slash extras. And from as little as $1.50 a month, you can make a real difference to us. If you've ever thought about buying us a beer... That's the way to do it. Buy us a beer and then we'll drink the beer whilst recording the podcast. Exactly. Makes the podcast more interesting. Hey, Hey. it's more fun.
0: We'll start doing some shout-outs to whoever's bought us a beer.
1: Thanks for listening to The Dish. Don't forget to subscribe and keep this podcast on the air by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen.
0: Also, come join our foodie community on Facebook in the Food Worth Travelling For Facebook group. Catch you next time.